I feel sick, I become incapacitated. When I came here, they said, you have a kidney failure. This isn't a disease of, of rich or poor, it's a disease of Africa. People in their economic prime, people who provide for their families, for themselves, and for the country and communities as well. You cannot do without dialysis. You are almost a prisoner. Because I still need life, I have even sold my farm. So now I'm a complete pauper. I don't have where to go after here. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die. So unless people look at ways of addressing prevention as the bigger problem, then we are headed for a nightmare. Sub-Saharan Africa is experiencing an emerging epidemic of diseases traditionally associated with Western lifestyles. One of these is kidney disease. In this programme, we'll speak to patients and doctors about the threat posed by kidney disease and what needs to be done before it's too late. Felix Akello lives in Uganda. He told me how he came to discover he had developed kidney disease. I used to wake up in the morning, I've just had a good sleep, then I find I'm very sleepy. And then eventually I started feeling as if the stomach is full and congested until I started having this, the swelling of the legs, peripheral edema. Then uh, one of the doctors said, you go, you go to check for your kidney function test. And when I went for the test, they found that I, the kidneys were not working, rather advanced. Actually, that's the problem. The kidney disease cannot alert you early until it reaches that level where you are swelling up and so on. Ah, that's when you really now wake up. By the time you wake up at that level, it's already advanced. When I came, they tested me for all those tests and found kidneys were at the verge of failing. A renal specialist tried to put them back to, to normal. For about seven months, the kidneys could not work until he declared that the kidneys had failed, I needed a uh, dialysis. He went on to explain the financial implications of a life on dialysis. So I started the dialysis, and it was very, very expensive. I was told to go for a transplant. I looked for the donor, I got the donor, but then the money also became too expensive. I could not raise the 30 $5,000 required to travel abroad. I have the donor, but the money is not there. The little money I would get would spend on dialysis to try to control. Now I cannot raise all the school fees for my children. I have had to pull them out from good schools to cheaper schools. You are almost a prisoner. Dr. Gavin Dreyer is a nephrologist or kidney doctor from the UK who spent the last three years working in Blantyre in Malawi. I asked him how many other people were suffering, like Felix, in sub-Saharan Africa. One of the problems is we don't really know because we don't have sufficient quality data to tell us how common kidney disease is. Whereas, for example, we understand a lot about HIV and malaria and tuberculosis because these are diseases with lots of funding behind them, lots of interest behind them, but the funding and the interest behind kidney disease isn't there. 
which means that we don't know for sure how common kidney disease is in a sort of sub-Saharan Africa continental setting. There's pockets of data. For example, we know that in Malawi, the prevalence of kidney disease is around about 11% in the general population, but is as high as 33% in patients with HIV and, and possibly higher in those with, um, uh, with more severe forms of HIV. But if you want to know how common is kidney disease in the general population in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a very big question mark hanging over there. And until we resolve that issue and get the right quality data from multiple different sites, we won't really know how common this condition is. I asked him why patients like Felix don't come to the hospital until their disease is already advanced. One of the difficulties about kidney disease is that in the early stages of kidney disease it's a completely asymptomatic condition so both of us could be sitting here with the mild form of kidney disease and have absolutely no idea because we have no symptoms when kidney disease progresses either in the acute form or in the uh, in the in the more chronic form then symptoms emerge but by the time the symptoms emerge the kidney disease is already severe and there may have been a window of opportunity to treat not cure necessarily but treat the kidney disease before it gets to that severe stage so the vast majority, I would say nine, more than 95% of my patients in Malawi where I was working, presented to me at the very extreme end of kidney disease. Often, you know, their life was on the line. And that's because there was no symptomatic warning sign for these patients to come and see the doctor. And by the time they had symptoms like swollen ankles or headaches or feeling tired or vomiting, the blood tests would always indicate or almost always indicate that this was very much end-stage kidney disease at a point where the cheap treatments like tablets have very little effect, but the expensive treatments like dialysis are really the only option to save somebody's life. Dr. Robert Kaliasubala is one of only four nephrologists in Uganda. I asked him what was causing the kidney disease in his patients. The commonest cause, whether it is the cause or an association, that might be established, but 80% of our patients have hypertension. The second uh, commonest problem is diabetes. The third one is actually infections, and the major one is HIV and uh, glomerulonephritis, infections of the kidney. So it really is the lifestyle change, people migrating, uh, eating much more salt, having the takeaways. So it, we believe that this has contributed greatly to the emergence of hypertension, which has been demonstrated rise, and the diabetes, which was less than 1%, to the current 8%. Uh, so there is that shift which clearly shows that the lifestyle is playing a big role when it comes to the kidney problem as well. He reiterated Dr. Dreyer's findings in Malawi. The patients were generally presenting late in the disease process. When we looked at our statistics, we actually noted that 60% of the people who come to our outpatient are already in stage 5 of kidney disease, the last stage where you can do very little. That means, of course, uh, stage 5 contributes about only 4% of the total population with kidney disease. So this is just the tip of the iceberg. And what is lying down there, unfortunately, we have not been able to unravel it. But we can infer that kidney disease is really a very big problem. And it is teaching us that as the other diseases increase, as we try to control the infections and focus on them, then the bigger problem of... Uh, the non-communicable diseases is actually going to be coming up and affecting our kidneys and other organs as well. I asked Dr Dreyer whether kidney disease was generally affecting people from wealthy or poor backgrounds. People from affluent and less affluent backgrounds are as likely to develop kidney disease but in very different ways and for very different reasons. 
if you think about an affluent population, these are people who are wealthy, they tend to have sedentary jobs, they eat a lot of processed food, lots of salt, they don't take enough exercise, they might smoke, they might drink, because those are actually sort of status symbols in some parts of Africa. And they will develop things like diabetes and obesity and, and high blood pressure, and that will lead to kidney disease. The less affluent population are potentially, and this isn't always true, but potentially more prone to um, malaria and tuberculosis and chronic infections. And I certainly think that that group is, is at risk of kidney disease for lots of different reasons. So this isn't a disease of, of rich or poor, it's a disease of Africa. I also wondered whether it was the young or the older generations that were being affected. We see young patients, and by young I mean teenagers, uh, and predominantly also patients under 40. Now if you compare that to my practice in the UK, the vast majority of patients I look at are over 60 and, and probably over 70. So in Africa, it's a young population. You talk about you know, a young population now and a young population in the future. Kidney disease affects people in their economic prime, people who provide for their families, for themselves, and for the country and communities as well. And it's a very debilitating illness. The fact that young people in Africa are developing kidney disease is a huge worry, particularly because it's presenting so late. And there are so many missed opportunities to detect kidney disease in this young population. That's where the focus has to be. One of those young patients is nine-year-old Brian Ojok. His father told me about his son's condition. I'm called Zach Opira Okeng. I have a son called Brian Ojok. He fell sick this year when he was nine years old on 27th of March, he was like not willing to get up as if he was feeling weak. When I tried to lift him up, he couldn't stand. Then immediately I informed the mother that the boy was seriously sick. Then the mother started uh, like brushing the teeth, washing his face. That was when he started convulsing. I called for the ambulance and we carried him to Molak Hospital and he was taken to acute wing for children. We were transferred to 6A for dialysis. He continued to be on oxygen for another five days. He was very weak. He could not lift his body to sit and uh, he was urinating a Coca-Cola colored urine. And from that time up to now, he is still on dialysis. He has now finished the six months, of which he has been declared to be having chronic kidney disease. And doctor has already advised that the only solution for him is the kidney transplant, which is not done in Uganda, but it is done in India. With little hope of finding the money for transplant, both Felix and Brian remain on long-term dialysis. I wanted to explore this some more, but before I did so, Dr Dreher reminded me of some of the basics. Um, so dialysis is the, the kidney machine. Uh, kidney machines are attached to the patient by very big drips, 
and they purify the blood and the, the kidneys are the filters of the body. They filter the acid out, they filter all the nasty chemicals that your body generates through the normal process of eating and drinking and day-to-day -day metabolism. And when the kidneys fail, the levels in the blood of those products accumulate and that's when you get sick, you get nausea and vomiting and headaches. And it gets to a point where the symptoms get so bad that there's no effective tablet treatment to make the kidneys work again. The kidneys are scarred and shrunken and, and really don't work. You have to have dialysis. Because of the complications associated with dialysis, doctors try and avoid its long-term use. The best role of dialysis is to bridge a gap until kidney function recovers or until a transplant becomes available. I asked Dr Robert whether dialysis is used in the same way in Uganda. Yes, it is. So we have acute dialysis where people just need dialysis to bridge their the the other problem they are facing of acute kidney injury where the kidneys temporarily affected and would need support to recover mainly pregnant women children and uh, people with infections but the ultimate goal of dialysis is for chronic kidney diseases to provide a bridge so that the people are able to get transplanted unfortunately a transplant is not done in uganda and we usually do it from developed countries majority of which is done from india and it usually costs between $20,000 and $35,000 to get that package. So the majority of people on dialysis actually can't afford also to have a transplant. So they hang in there, dialysis fails, they have dialysis when they're able to get the money. Then they don't do it, they fall sick, like that. It's not the best dialysis like we would want to do it. So even the dream of transplant is just a far dream from them. One of those people who has found himself stuck on long-term dialysis is Vincent Mugenyi. He brought home what a life on dialysis is really like. I am retired Lieutenant Colonel Mugenyi, a pilot with the Air Force. I'm 63 years of age. All the time you are weak. And uh, you cannot do anything because um, even walking is a problem. For example, I have problem with my knees, problem with hips, and very weak. You can't walk actually for a distance. You can't. So that's, that, that means I cannot do anything on my own. Since 2008, I've not done anything on my own. I've only been here spending money, spending money on dialysis. I asked him how he found the money each week to pay for the dialysis. I had a smaller farm. I had about 100 animals in my farm. I have sold all the, those animals for the treatment. Because I still need life, I have even sold my farm. So now I'm a complete pauper. I don't have where to go after here. That's how it has affected me. It has depleted every resource of mine. Every resource of mine cows, the land. You know, here in Uganda, and I think elsewhere, land is very important. But I've sold mine off. Just to, 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 to keep life, to buy life. That is how this disease has affected me. So now, um, after here, I will be in the hands of the Lord. He knows who, where to put me and how I shall survive. I asked Dr. Robert whether it was right to offer dialysis to patients like Vincent, whose funds were likely to run out. So that discussion is always ongoing. 
and the families are involved and given all the information. But you realize in our culture, no one wants to let their people die. They would rather sell whatever they have, and they are they do that willingly, and they are aware of the fact. A few people have sat down and said, yeah, maybe we don't have these resources, and we should do what is called palliative care for this patient. That information is given. But unfortunately, the majority of patients are not going to take this lying down. They do the best they can. And we try to do that, especially on the advice of one of my friends. We try to do it, but then it wouldn't work. You'd find that the person who did not have any resources initially goes around and mobilizes resources and goes for a transplant. People have gone to radios, they've gone to the public, they've gone on TV, they've asked for people to support them, and the media has come up. People have come up and raised funds for them. Some rich guy has sponsored them. The government has helped a bit once in a while. So it's very difficult to say this one is poor, don't start on dialysis. So we cancel them, give them the facts, and then fall along as we do. I asked Dr. Dreyer how appropriate he thought it was to offer expensive treatments like dialysis in resource-poor countries like Uganda and Malawi. So there's a huge ethical dilemma and ethical challenge when you consider the cost to governments and the cost to individuals about dialysis. So in Malawi, like I said, it costs the, the Malawian government 27,000 US dollars per patient per year. If you're treating 10 patients with dialysis for a year in Malawi, that's $270,000. How many Malaria bed nets can that buy, TB drugs, HIV drugs, etc., etc. So the the trade-off between expensive dialysis and, and, and other medical treatments is very, very difficult. Now, you could then say, well, should we not do any dialysis in Africa? Should we ban it? Should we invest the funds elsewhere? You could do that. Some governments have. But then, of course, there are thousands and thousands of patients with kidney disease, some of whom will recover, like from malaria, but some of whom won't. Now, should they be denied treatment just because it's expensive? I don't have the answer for that. And that's luckily a decision I don't have to make. The governments and healthcare providers have to ascertain the risks, benefits, and the cost benefit of, say, offering dialysis compared to offering HIV drugs, for example. So it's a very, very complicated issue. And, and, and in so, some countries, uh, governments have taken the approach that because it's so expensive, the patients have to pay, which means that if you come from a poor rural area and you haven't got the money, you'll die from kidney failure if you can't afford dialysis. So the rich... The rich will survive. It was clear that an expensive organ replacement therapy like dialysis was not going to solve the problem of kidney disease in Africa. I asked Dr Dreher where we need to focus our efforts. The beauty of kidney disease is the treatments for the early forms of kidney disease are already with us. They are simple and cheap drugs for blood pressure to control acid levels in the blood, better awareness, salt reduction in the diet, increased exercise. When HIV came along there was no effective treatment and it took... I think between five and ten years to generate a treatment and that was the major challenge. We don't have that obstacle with kidney disease. Everybody obsesses with dialysis, this this kidney machine replacement for, for kidney failure and kidney transplantation. And while it's relevant, it's far, far, far less relevant than giving somebody medicine for their blood pressure. So we our opportunity is now. Nothing is holding us back from, from treating these patients, is that they present so late that all the tablets in the world aren't going to make the difference and you think that this patient needs dialysis. It's an extremely high cost when in fact the blood pressure pills cost about five US cents per month. You know, so there's no argument about which is more cost effective or which is more effective. It's got to be the simple and cheap drugs. I went on to ask him whether we need any new cheap technology to make all this happen. 
I don't think we need the funny thing is I don't think we need much more cheap technology because like I said before I think the cheap technology is there it's these urine dipstick tests and basic uh, blood tests those tests are there for HIV those tests are there for malaria they're coming for TB but in fact they've been around for donkey's years for kidney disease and I do mean 30 or 40 years now what's stopping us is a lack of awareness among patients which is not their fault but because it's an asymptomatic condition perhaps a lack of awareness or willingness to think about kidney disease among physicians when everybody's telling them no 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 research funding is here for hiv opportunities to work abroad hiv is the most important thing and of course it's very very important um but you know i would argue that kidney disease deserves the same level of importance that hiv is receiving because we are really neglecting a very very important disease which at the early stages can be treated not cured but treated very effectively with cheap treatments but if you wait to develop kidney failure you either die or you have or you have to pay for dialysis or find someone that will give you a kidney transplant. And that's very, very difficult in sub-Saharan Africa. I asked Dr. Robert what was being done along these lines in Uganda. Unfortunately, not so much has been done. The challenge is the limited capacity. We have only four nephrologists uh, in the country of 35 million and uh, only one is in training. So it is really a big problem. We have formulated the the Uganda Kidney Foundation, which is now trying to address the issues of awareness. And uh, we are also celebrating the World Kidney Day with the rest of the world. We are also trying to get some of the people who have been transplanted, the patients and their relatives, to be able to spread the messages of prevention because we believe prevention is definitely going to be the best shot for us. Unfortunately, we don't have enough resources for kidney disease. And this is not just for Uganda, but it's the world over. So that's what we are doing for now, informing the public, going to radios and telling them, but we can only do so much. I asked Dr. Dreyer what makes it so hard to get a problem like kidney disease onto the global healthcare agenda. Everybody will be familiar with Bill Gates and the other benefactors of healthcare in Africa. And, you know, we've looked at some of their funding streams for kidney disease and it's very clear that their preference is to fund high-profile diseases for which they want really rapid cures and treatments, HIV, malaria and TB are obviously the big three, maternal health and paediatric health, child health is another one. And I'm afraid that kidney disease competes very poorly in that arena because it hasn't got the same high-profile Uh, the same media profile or the same public awareness and I understand therefore why people like Bill Gates have been less willing to fund kidney disease and other conditions. Now that makes it difficult for researchers like me to pursue the relevant research questions for kidney disease. So funding is a major challenge for kidney disease. It's a major challenge for everybody because globally now funding streams are reduced because of the financial turndown but that's probably going to improve. But what I'd really love to see or possibly even start is a charity to generate funding for kidney disease research in sub-Saharan Africa, which is a very underrated area of need. And even when money is available for kidney disease, it's relatively small money. Uh, you know, five to $10,000 isn't small money to most people, but in the scheme of things, when you're looking at five to $10 million grants for HIV and TB, you can see the comparison. I asked him who was speaking up for kidney disease in Africa. People are trying very hard. So the International Society of Nephrology, which is sort of the global organisation which leads a lot of kidney disease research in, in, in rural and remote settings, has you know really weighed into the political arena. They went to the UN meeting on non-communicable diseases, um, which I think was about 18 months ago. And so we are now just sort of you know having a presence at the table. But we have to compete with everybody else who's at that table. And the people at that table are the HIV researchers and TB and malaria who are promoting research in diseases which are very, very much in the public eye. 
very much symptomatic, you know, the tug on all the heartstrings and kidney disease just doesn't really have that, that angle. So there's a lot of political work to do. Now, that, that tide is changing, but, you know, political funds and resources and, and uh, momentum are, are thin on the ground in Africa. So to add yet another condition onto the political agenda is very challenging. And you have to say, well, if we do get kidney disease at the table, is anything going to suffer? Just because we're at the table, are we silent partners? Do we really have a voice? So there's a lot of sort of negotiating to do with the politicians, both in the West and in Africa, say, for example, to make this a research and, and clinical priority. It's well known that doctors and researchers are at risk of overemphasising the importance of their own area of interest. However, the scale of the emerging epidemic of non-communicable conditions like kidney disease is hard to ignore, particularly considering how little is being done on the ground. I'd been touched by some of the stories of the patients I'd met and inspired by the energy that Dr Robert and Dr Dreher are committing to this underdog of the global health world. Silent conditions like kidney disease need more loud activists like them. I'll leave you with Dr Robert's grave words of warning. What will happen if we don't take this emerging epidemic seriously? Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die and uh, the epidemic is going to grow to overwhelming levels that we might not be able to address it because uh, looking at Uganda of 35 million we actually have, I think, currently 33 dialysis machines. So if we got an earthquake, actually would not be able to handle it. So unless people look at ways of addressing prevention as the bigger problem, then we are headed for a nightmare. <laughs>